Welcome to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from around the courthouse from the lady who wrote everything down. I'm Jordan Rich, Boston-based broadcaster and podcaster, and, and it's a great pleasure to work alongside Diane on this podcast. And today we have a returning guest, the Honorable Judge Robert Cosgrove, a member of the Massachusetts Superior Court. And he's here to reflect on the Diane Farley murder trial. And we're excited about going behind the scenes, Diane. Today we're going to speak about a murder that happened in Dedham, Massachusetts back in April of 1993. I was the court reporter on the retrial. It was a case that was tried twice in Norfolk Superior Court in Dedham, Mass. And the prosecutor at the time was Robert Cosgrove, who was now Honorable Robert Cosgrove, a member of the Massachusetts Judicial Bar. And he's graciously accepted a second invitation to come on to this podcast, and it, we're really excited about that today. So we're going to talk about Commonwealth versus Diane Farley. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Fine, thanks. Great to see you again. You know, in prepping for this, right out of the gate, I had forgotten it was a retrial. And we, I guess for ease of listeners, we should refer to Farley 1 and Farley 2. How does that sound? That sounds uh, pretty much the way uh, the courts would refer to it if they were <laughs> citing it in a judicial opinion. So um, the case at the time, you were the prosecutor and I was the court reporter. The name of the person, the victim, was Sally Ann Marcel. I think her real name was Sarah and they called her Sally. Her, her real name was Sarah Ann. Sarah Ann. And Sally was what she went by. And she was murdered in her own bedroom in Dedham, Massachusetts. I remember we went to the view, which would be, you know, everybody gets on a bus and we go view the scene. I remember it looked like a Hansel and Gretel house. That's all I could think of was a miniature little cute house. It was on a street called Glancy Lane in, in Dedham. That's right. I do recall that. And if you can just, I thought it was so interesting in prepping for this, I read a little something about how, just how you came to be on Farley 2 because you were not the prosecutor on Farley 1. And I saw that you volunteered when you were a member of the DA's office. That's cool that you volunteered. But also the um, what led to it like um, legally to get in a posture that it was able to be retried. Well, the case was originally tried by a very able prosecutor named Marianne Henkel, uh, and uh, she secured a guilty verdict. And after she did that, she left the office, went to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, she's now a, a district court judge, as a matter of fact. But uh, she left the office, and then um, uh, I inherited the case by virtue of losing the appeal. Ah. I was the appellate attorney who handled the case on appeal. Uh, there was actually a motion for a new trial first, which was uh, heard by the original trial judge, Sandra Hamlin, and denied. And then the case went up on appeal, and um, we lost. And the case was uh, sent back by the uh, Supreme Judicial Court, our highest court, for a new trial. Um, they ultimately decided that uh, Ms. Farley had received ineffective assistance of counsel. So back it went, and um, I was mostly doing appellate work, but I was also trying cases in the Superior Court. And as a matter of fact, I had never tried a murder case, so I thought this would be fun. and. <laughs> You know, Mary Ann has already uh, done it, and I've read through the whole transcript, and I've got kind of a nice roadmap here, and nobody knows the case better than I do at this point. So uh, I volunteered, and the, uh, the district attorney was uh, kind enough to assign the case to me, and um, uh, so Who? that's how it uh, came to be retried. Who was the DA at the time for Norfolk County? I can't remember. Uh, uh, Bill Keating was the DA oh, when, yes. when it was uh, uh, during the retrial, and uh, William Delahunt was the DA when the case uh, had originally been tried. Now, you said ineffective assistance of counsel. If I were a member of the bar and that was like they, the court found that against me, I would like crawl into a hole and just be like, what? Like, what would constitute something like that? Well, uh, all kinds of things might uh, uh, constitute it. Uh, the uh, 
the legal test for ineffective assistance of counsel is set out in a case called Commonwealth versus Safarian. And basically, uh, you have to show, to prove ineffective assistance of counsel, you have to show that your lawyer's conduct uh, fell below the standard of the the average counsel, you know, not below Perry Mason, but below the average counsel, and that uh, as a result, uh, that uh, you lost a offense or a defense or visibly uh, suffered in some way. I'm not phrasing it exactly uh, correct, but there needs to be a showing that uh, something better uh, might have uh, been accomplished had. Uh, uh, counsel performed uh, up to snuff. And in theory, uh, they try not to be, uh, they try not to second guess. So uh, you as a lawyer may, may make a tactical decision. It may have some advantages, it may have some disadvantages. They won't go back and say, well, um, maybe if he had chosen this path instead mm -hmm. of that path, uh, he would have been successful and therefore he's ineffective. It has to be uh, uh, a showing of a, uh, of a real mistake. And uh, they, they, they cited uh, uh, several mistakes here, including uh, uh, not preparing for a particular witness and uh, asking what they called uh, pointless questions on cross-examination and, and a few other things. Uh, so... Mm -hmm. One can agree or disagree with their judgment on that. And um, in my present position, the Supreme Judicial Court is never wrong. But I can tell you when I was a DA and I got the phone call and it said judgment reversed, I might have had a different view about that. Now, when you were preparing for Farley 2, you obviously, I would think, you'd have to decide on what theory you're going to proceed on. And I saw something very interesting, that in Farley 1, the jury came back with premeditation. And I found that so interesting because I remember when I sat through the case, they never exactly knew why it happened. They knew it happened. But there was speculation, but we'll never exactly know motive. No, uh, we won't, and and to this day, I can't tell you what the yeah. what the motive was. Right. Um, and um, I th I think I recall Diane. You might remember better than I if you looked at the the transcript of the judge's charge recently, which uh, which you prepared, of course, uh, for the appellate court when you were preparing the record. I'm quite sure that I asked Judge Crassley to give an instruction that the Commonwealth is not required to prove motive uh, right. as part of its case, although if there is evidence of motive, that's something the jury can uh, consider. And the reason I wanted that instruction was, of course, I really didn't have a good explanation as to, uh, as to why that happened. And, uh, of course, if you're thinking about premeditation, uh, which is sort of uh, deciding in advance that you're going to kill somebody and, and focusing your mind on that end goal right. uh, before you act. Um, it, it it helps to be able to point to to a motive. Sure. Uh, like I know you did a show on the the Grinadier case um, and uh, the doctor who who killed his wife. And, yes. We had good motive evidence in in, in that it was uh, you know a desire to uh, um, pursue some uh, sexual mm. yes. uh, some sexual things. Uh, so, uh, but in this case, uh, we didn't have motive. So, I thought it was a great case for the other theory of first degree murder, extreme atrocity and and, and cruelty which involves a number of possible factors, but one of them is, uh, is kind of excess. You don't just kill the person, but you really go to town they skew doing She it. was skewered. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, she was, uh, she was uh, 11, yes. 11 stab wounds. 11 stab and, and wounds, I remember. A, found in a pool of blood and so forth. Can I just ask? Sure. Because I, I'm the, the voice of the listener here, too, and I'm so wrapped in attention on this. 
What was the relationship between the defendant and the uh, and the victim? They were friends. And you know what I thought was interesting? You may recall this, um, Judge Cosgrove. They had only met six weeks prior on St. Patrick's Day. So they weren't like lifelong mm-hmm. friends or, you know, as a lay person listening to the case, you know what I was thinking? I know I'm not supposed to have an opinion and I don't say a word, but she was found on her bedroom floor face up and she was... Only thing she had on was a T-shirt. I don't know if it was a sex thing gone bad. There was spe- they found cocaine. Medical examiner said there was cocaine in her, in the decedent's um, body. So was it a drug thing? And also, when Ms. Farley was picked up after, by her boyfriend from the home where the murder happened, a wad of money fell out of her, her you know her pocket or whatever. And her boyfriend was like, "Hmm, that's funny. She was broke last night. Was it a?" A money thing? She's. I don't know. Well, you know, uh, that's one of those things. As a prosecutor, you throw as much uh, possibility out there as as you yeah. can get away with in terms of the evidence. And uh, uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say it was any of those things. But if the jury decides that that's the motive, uh, good for them. Uh, I can say from what I learned of Sally's history, uh, I never, um, I, I never thought that there was anything sexual that was likely to be a factor in the relationship. Um, I don't really know too much about Ms. Farley's no. history, whether that could have been. Uh, uh, jilted lover type motive or something like that. Uh, I don't know, but as 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 far as I know, um, Sally, uh, as you mentioned, had a drug problem that she yes. had, had been working to overcome and had been pretty successful in overcoming. Uh-huh. And and uh, you know from sitting through a lot of these cases that the. The nature of addiction is you make these efforts at recovery, mm-hmm. and then oftentimes there's a relapse, and you have to start at square one. And I think there there had been sort of a relapse in uh, uh, in, in Sally's case, and I think uh, Diane Farley was a companion that she fell into. Um, as a result of the fact that I, I think they were both doing cocaine. Mm. Mm. Uh, so I think that was part of the basis of their friendship, uh, unfortunately. So when the case went forward with Farley too, as you, the prosecutor, what did you proceed on, to be clear for the listener? What theory? Well, <clears throat> uh, the double jeopardy clause of the United States Constitution says... Um, that you can't be prosecuted twice for the same crime. And you'd, you'd think that was fairly simple, and you'd think somebody's charged with murder, they're convicted, they appeal, no problem doing the, the, the re-prosecution. But because the first jury only found her guilty on a theory of premeditation, they in effect acquitted her on a theory of extreme atrocity and cruelty. So I couldn't proceed on that theory. All I could argue was uh, was premeditation. So that is what I did argue, and fortunately, the the jury was persuaded. Uh, just another quick question: How much time between the first and the second trial? I can so. tell you by the time I did the appeal, which is to say, after she got a new lawyer and the new lawyer brought a motion for a new trial, and that was heard and denied. Uh, and then the whole thing, the denial of the motion for new trial and the first murder conviction uh, went up before the SJC, that I filed my brief in that case in November of 1999. So we're already five years uh, past the murder. And then I filed my brief on the retrial September of 2004. Several years stint between trial one and 
and the follow-up trial? Oh, I'd say at least five. Okay, at least five. That was my question. Now, Jordan, you've been sitting here patiently chomping at the bit, I'm sure, like, what the heck happened? Well, I, we'll let you know what happened. We'll uh, tell you the story. I'm just going to sit back and follow along. Before we do that, I have one question that I've always wanted to know because I am not a law school graduate, but I've listened to many jury charges from judges, and I do recall, correct me if I'm wrong, when they outline premeditation, what do they say, with malice of forethought? But anyway, can you premeditate moments before you kill someone I think you can right you know yes. Yes. how does the, how do you how can that not be spur of the moment like crime of sit? passion type of thing yeah I don't get um, it so what judges typically instruct is it's not necessarily any period of time it's it's the sequence uh, first you form the intent to kill and then you decide to go forward it's 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 the the purposefulness of it not the time so to speak yeah it's not the time that's so hard to uh, how do you know like how can you prove that it's like so hard well uh <clears throat> i had that uh, uh i thought a lot about that yeah and um I won't be vain enough to say you remember my closing argument after <laughs> X number of years, although you may, because you probably looked it. at it yes, again. I yes, I did. Yes, I but, did. It was great. Uh, we never found the murder weapon, but the there was some suggestion that uh, there was a big, like, butcher block knife I that was this. missing from yeah. the kitchen set of knives. Diane Farley had been downstairs. She had to go downstairs to the kitchen to get that knife. And I talked about her going up the steps, taking first one step, then the next step, thinking about killing Sally, which was an inference. And I was saying to the, the jury, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, with every step she took, she had an opportunity to think about it right. and turn back Retreat. and change her mind yeah. but she went forward with her plan so That's powerful. that was how i tried to suggest uh, premeditation uh, but um, you know obviously uh, well maybe it's not so obvious but but i don't think this is something that when the evening started out diane farley was thinking about murdering I think something happened in the course of the evening, and she became enraged for whatever reason, uh, and um, and then she formed the plan. So it wasn't uh, sort of instant premeditation, so to speak, but it was, uh, um, you know, it wasn't a, uh, a long-term plan plotted uh, killing by any means either. Well, to set the stage, as we said, it happened right in Sally's home in her bedroom, and it was a small home on a very small street. Was it like a dead-end street? It was kind of like a little alley street type thing, as I remember. And um, I know that you had outlined in the opening that Sally had four grown children. She was recently separated from her husband. She worked at a travel agency and had an ex-boyfriend who she was still in good standing with, and he would help her out. Yeah, a gentleman named Tim Armour. Right. And it, I guess from the beginning of the story, the day of the murder, she took her paycheck and he helped her cash it. Yes, I'm not... I'm not quite sure what the mechanism was but i don't think she had a bank account i don't so, think so either from so what, he would yeah. he would help her he would help her yeah he'd essentially right. deposit her deposit it and then uh, give her the money and and she had just been paid it was right. a friday so she had just been paid and i wonder if that money was the money that rolled out of diane farley's um, pants pocket when she got out of her boyfriend's car the next morning i don't know well, certainly that was our theory. Yeah. Mm. Um, but I don't – again, everybody can have their own own opinion. I mean, you mentioned it as a, a, as a possible motive, and there are probably people in the world who would kill you for $300. But yes. in this case, uh, I, I think it was a case of she, of, uh, she killed Sally and then – 
Yeah. She just grabbed the money yep. as, uh, if indeed that's where she got it, uh, as sort of an afterthought. Right. So that day, um, about 5.30 p.m., she drove to a friend. I'm going to massacre the name, but I'll try. Salim Ghazli. Can you help me on this one? Salim Ghazali. We, go. we always just called him Salim. Uh, that's a good idea. Hmm. And she had said, let's meet up at the local watering hole tonight, which is, I guess it was called Billy Jackson. It isn't even in business anymore. No, and, and, and probably we three people sitting in the studio are the only three people in the world old enough to re- catch the reference Billy Jackson. That's but right. You remember it was a popular movie yeah. uh, yes. oh, yeah. back at the time, and apparently it was the name of a bar in Hyde Park, mm-hmm. which was where they met up. And Salim was, I think, a citizen of Lebanon originally and had come to this country, but his legs had been – he had lost the use of his legs yes. as a result of, of the war in uh, in Lebanon. So uh, he uh, he had a special car, one of those yeah. automobiles like that FDR you can drive had. just with – Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, Hand-operated, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so he winds up meeting Sally at uh, – the parking lot of uh, Billy Jacks. I'm not sure how she knew he was there, but he goes out to the the parking lot, and they're kind of buddies. And she gives him some money and says, uh, uh, "Here's some money for for gas for your car, and will you pick me up some cigarettes?" Right. So now that night, um, when Sally was preparing to leave her home to go out to Billy Jacks for the night, she was with Diane Foley. Sally's brother came to the house. I guess he went out and got beer, came back. He says they were upstairs trying on clothes and fooling around, and nothing seemed amiss. Yeah, my sense of it is that uh, Sally was going to give some of her clothes to her her friend, and that's right. why Diane was up in her bedroom trying on different clothes. Right. Or maybe some of it was in the living room as, as well. So they the la- at 9 p.m. that evening, that night of the murder, um, Sally's brother said that's the last time he saw her alive. Exactly. So they go to the bar, and as you said, Salim comes to the bar but doesn't enter the bar, and she gives him gas and cigarette money, and then Sally and Diane end up back at Sally's house, and the whole thing seems bizarre. There were so many it moving parts. I mean, there, I, yeah. I've never done cocaine in my life. I don't know what it does to you, but it just, I don't know. It was yeah. a lot of coming and going, and you know, it was interesting. The neighbor observed some things, and she's never found out why in the middle of the night, Diane Farley and Sally went up to her door and knocked on it at 3 a.m., she wouldn't answer the door. Her dog was barking. Like, mm. what was that all about? Yes, uh, the the neighbor's last name actually was uh, Cosgrove. Cosgrove, right? And uh, I remember I was trying to introduce a, a note of levity into the trial, and of course, the first thing you usually ask the witness is, "Would you introduce yourself to the jury?" And uh, she does, and 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 then I said. Uh, and we're not related or married. And she said, no, with such total horror, I thought, well, I guess I'm not the man of her dreams, you know. But uh, I just think people uh, are so freaked out when they're on that stand. It's, well, it's nerve-wracking beyond belief. Well, yeah, and you don't want the jury to think you're calling your sister or your wife or something like that as a, a witness in your trial. So I wanted to establish that. But uh, may, I, may I ask, Judge, uh, and again, I, I'm – waiting at the edge of my seat for some of these answers and I can't wait but what was the uh, the alibi that Diane Farley tried to to express and it's pretty outrageous if you look at it now from this vantage point but what was I mean how could she possibly have gotten out of it with this story and what was the story well uh, well <laughs> we're, we're jumping ahead a little but basically she told Various iterations of her story, and one of her problems was uh, each of her stories was a little bit different. Uh. But uh, her basic story was that there was a uh, – Sally dealer? wanted to buy drugs, <laughs> and she called one – her regular dealer, I guess you'd call him, uh, without success. And uh, so then she called this uh, – 
other person with the street name of uh, Raphael. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if he was one of the Teenage Ninja Mutant <laughs> Turtles or an artist or, or what, but that was that was what he went by, okay. and uh, she described him as a, uh, a Puerto Rican, and she gave a little bit of a uh, physical description, and she said that uh, he came to the house. Uh, she had various variations on what happened next. Uh, she and she sent him upstairs. She answers the door. She's downstairs. She sends Raphael uh, upstairs. Sally Hall is down. Send him up. And uh, he goes up and, and she goes up. He and Sally start to, to argue. She leaves, goes back downstairs. And at some point, I, I forget where Raphael was supposed to be at at this point, but... Uh, I guess Sally, Diane Farley says that she heard them speaking about money. I don't know you money, Raphael. And evidently, Diane Farley, to refresh your memory, Your Honor, runs up the stairs, sees a knife, and she says, Sally, don't do it. And she struggles with the knife and tries to get the knife away. And that's how Sally gets cut. Right. Uh, but there was another variation yes. in the story where... Uh, Diane Farley falls asleep yes. on uh, Sally's bed. I think while, while, while Raphael and Sally are arguing in another room, she's tired, so she kind of uh, sacks out in the bed, and she wakes up, and Raphael has uh, his uh, exposed penis in her face, and she jumps up and, and screams and so forth, but... Uh, Ultimately, Raphael and Sally get in a fight. Yep. Um, Diane says that she she tries to intervene and she gets she just gets cut right uh, on the uh, the hand. Uh, that became sort of a significant piece that we picked away at. But uh, uh, she did indeed sustain a a, a wound to her hand. And then uh, she got frightened, uh, ran downstairs. In the basement. Into the basement. And stayed there. And stayed there until she heard the front door of the house slam. Uh, I just discovered that it's uh, it's hard to make a slamming sound when you're in a studio where all of the walls are, uh, <laughs> They're all padded, Judge. are, are padded yeah. and muffled. So yeah. people have to imagine the sound <laughs> effect. But she heard the, the slam of the front door, and then she cautiously came out. Uh, saw that uh, Sally was dead, and she called her, her boyfriend, a gentleman by the name of uh, David Blatz, and uh, asked him to uh, come over and uh, pick her up. So and that was in the morning by that time? That was in the morning by that time, yes. The testimony indicated that Diane Farley called her boyfriend, David Blatz, for a ride around 3 a.m., and he refused to come pick her up. But he said, if you still want a ride in the morning, I'll come over and get you. The reason she indicated she wanted the ride at 3 a.m. was because she said to David Blatz that she and Sally had been fighting. The boyfriend, Sally's boyfriend, spoke with Sally at 6 a.m. and nothing seemed to miss. There were multiple phone calls, so the murder must have happened after 6 a.m. Yes. Um, so it's 6 a.m., uh, the, the the boyfriend, as you say, has a couple of phone calls with her, and nothing seems, as you put it, amiss to him. And then uh, the next uh, objective thing that we can place is that about 8.30 in the morning, uh, Amy Cosgrove, uh, the neighbor, calls and basically wants to know, why were you people outside my home knocking on the door at 3 o'clock in the morning? And she asked to speak with Sally, and a person whose voice she recognizes, Diane Farley's, tells her she's sleeping. Right. So that was 8.30. Uh, so the inference, uh, certainly that I would have hoped the jury would draw, is that by that point, Diane Farley is dead sometime between... Um, six o'clock or so when she talks to Tim Amor and 8.30. And then at 9.38, uh, another friend of Sally's calls 
asked to talk with her, and uh, a woman other than Sally, she couldn't identify the voice, answers, and she says, Sally is sleeping. Mm -hmm. And again, as the prosecutor, I wanted the jury to draw the inference that that was Diane Farley, uh, just as with the earlier call, and that uh, uh, by that time, Sally is, is, is deceased. But uh, to return to the hand, because this sort of ties in with this, um, she had a wound on her hand, and she went uh, and got uh, medical treatment for that wound with the, uh, with the doctor. And I don't know if it was concern over – I don't know what the, the medical concern was exactly um, at this point. Uh, I think I actually called the doctor. Uh, but the uh, – uh, Diane tells the doctor – the doctor tells Diane, it's important that we know about what time you got this injury. And Diane says – was about seven o'clock in the morning, oh, so boy. so I think if you had a bet on a time when uh, poor Sally left yeah. this earth, yes. seven o'clock in the morning would be a a pretty good bet. Mm. Now the night before, Amy Cosgrove, the neighbor, observed. Salim's car drive up at like three in the morning, and when you questioned him, he did say, in fact, he was there. But he delivered cigarettes, and then he left around three twenty or so. Yeah, he 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 stops to drop off the uh, the cigarettes that she gave him the money for. Yes. Um, and uh, Salim was in some uh, pain because of the condition of his legs, and as it happened, uh, Sally had had. Uh, a couple of weeks of bad luck, so to speak, which was about to get Worse. much more severe. But she had uh, fallen on her back steps, and uh, her her leg was in a cast, and her her leg was apparently uh, giving her pain. So she asked uh, she asked Salim if uh, she can have some of his pills to deal with the the pain in her leg. But he's mm. there for about. 15 minutes in retrospect whether he thought this at the time I don't know but his, his testimony was that she seemed uneasy at that point and he asked her you know is everything okay or are you all right or are you sure you want me to leave or something to that effect and uh, uh, Diane tells him no 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 she'll she'll, she'll be fine and uh, he leaves after about 15 minutes you know when Amy Cosgrove took the stand I do remember that she said after they were at her door and she did not answer, she could see them walk back into Sally's house. There were no other people around, no cars, and the lights were on, and she could see Diane Farley in the home drinking in the kitchen. Yes, I think uh, I think uh, Diane and, uh, and Sally both. And uh, you may remember from The View, Amy Cosgrove's house was right across the street. Yep. And we took the jury over to, uh, I don't remember if Amy Cosgrove was still living there at that point or not, but we, we took them over to what was her her house and had them look across the street so that they could uh, see and affect the same uh, mm. viewpoint that she had that night. There was another part of the testimony that in my mind went unanswered, and it was when Sally Marcel was seen sitting alone in her Jeep at a local supermarket in the parking lot in the middle of the night. And a local police officer testified he spoke with her briefly in the parking lot. It was never explained how it all tied into the murder, if at all. No one ever said why she was there, but the police officer backed up that she was sitting in Flanagan's supermarket in the middle of the night, during this whole crazy night. Can I ask a question? Did Diane Farley have any sort of a criminal record at all? One, at this point, I don't think that's a question I can answer. But two, I honestly don't remember. Mm. I just wonder, you know, you may not know this, but at the end of um, lunch hour one day during that trial, I was in the courtroom and no one, I was in there fooling with my equipment to get ready for the 2 p.m. session of our trial. And a woman walked in, a very beautiful woman, beautifully dressed, beautifully groomed. It was Diane Folly's mother. 
And she came in the courtroom and, you know, I'm like, may I help you? Because a lot of times people wander in, they're looking for like the mm-hmm. two, two, you know, the call of the civil list downstairs. And she said who she was. And I spoke with her. And I'll tell you, she was a lovely lady. She said she lived in Florida and she came up to hear part of the trial. And my heart just broke for her because these crimes, you and I see the far reaching extent of it's not just the perpetrator and the victim. It's so far reaching how these impact people on both sides. Mm-hmm. But Yeah, there's a lot of collateral damage and on all these cases. I never knew that uh, Diane's mother was uh, present at the trial, but that's interesting because Sally's mother, who was pretty sure living in Florida at the time, flew down for the the trial as well. And of course, you know, one of the concerns you have for for victims' family is, uh, you know, you're showing photographs of the body oh, and flashing graphic. them on the screen, and they're hearing this graphic testimony, and it's, uh, I was just it's going a pretty to tough thing to sit through. Ask you about the physical evidence that led to the final verdict, because uh, you know you talked about the premeditation question, but what about the physical evidence? And and I know Diane, you wanted to talk a little bit about the DNA and other things that had advanced a bit between the first yes. and second trial. If you want to take it from there, go ahead. Well, um, that would tie into um, the the problems with retrying a case. Um, witnesses die, you know, their memory fades, they move away, they become infirmed. And Raphael, you said, on the second trial, wanted to plead the fifth. I don't know what that was all about. Like, you know, things happen. So can you speak to that? And the DNA was not recognized in Massachusetts until Farley, too. Am I correct? Right. Uh, so so let's break that into two parts. Uh, first, I'll talk about uh, Raphael wanting to plead the fifth, and then we'll go back and talk about the, uh, the DNA. As it turned out, there was a drug dealer whose nickname was uh, Raphael, uh, one of uh, Diane's problems was that he wasn't uh, Puerto Rican. He was he was black, and um, I don't know how Marianne Hinkle or maybe it was uh, uh, Kevin Shea, who was the very capable state police officer who um, handled that aspect of the case, both for Marianne and then then later on for me, uh, managed to do it, but. Um, This uh, gentleman, Raphael, was uh, maybe sufficiently outraged that he was being accused of murder, and he agreed to come in and and testify. And uh, so he did. He testified in uh, in trial one, and of course he couldn't say anything about <laughs> Diane Farley, but he could say, "I don't know." Sally Marcel, I wasn't there that night. I didn't have anything to do with this. Um, so that was very helpful testimony. But um, somewhere along the way, um, I don't know if he had a conversation with an attorney or, or, or what, who told him, Look, you know, in your line of work, if you're going to take the witness stand and testify, you may have some uh, exposure here. And indeed, Sally's attorney in round two just couldn't wait to ask him what he was doing today. How was he employed? You know, uh, uh, are you still selling drugs? And 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 so forth. And um, so first, he wanted to assert the the Fifth Amendment and not testify in the second trial. And unfortunately for him. The law was that by taking the stand in the first trial, this was essentially the same proceeding that he had waived his Fifth Amendment rights as to everything he uh, he testified to in any subject that he testified to in, in trial one. So uh, Judge Gratzley ordered him to testify, and he did. Um, but he still could claim the Fifth to the extent that he was asked questions that went into areas that uh, that weren't explored um, in trial number one, and then that became an issue in the in the second appeal. But uh, fortunately, Judge Gratzley was upheld in his his ruling. So so that's that's the Raphael story. Now to return to the to Jordan's question about uh, 
DNA and uh, um, the physical evidence. Uh, you know, it's amazing. Today we hardly think anything about DNA. Right. Uh, it's, uh, you know, we hear about the Innocence Project and yes. these people are cleared or uh, people are convicted based on DNA and it's, uh, it's very uh, reliable evidence and so forth. But when it first came out, um, the courts were slow to accept it. They wanted to be sure it was reliable evidence. And uh, the Norfolk County District Attorney's Office, to their credit, was a leader in trying to get this evidence accepted in, in Massachusetts. And Marianne Hinkle was working on it. And there was an appellate attorney named uh, Stephanie Glennon, who was still with that office, as a matter of fact, who uh, brought a couple of appeals unsuccessfully, uh, trying to get uh, DNA evidence uh, admitted. So uh, they had tried to get uh, some DNA evidence admitted, um, analysis of, of some blood spots on the floor um, or on the garment. I, I, I forget the specific locales. But anyway, at that time, you needed the FBI lab to do it. And it was a fairly uh, arduous uh, process. Um, and uh, Marianne had that evidence, and the original trial judge uh, wouldn't let her admit it. So uh, we went forward, uh, Marianne went forward with the way that uh, blood evidence uh, typically came in in those days, which was uh, the same kind of uh, blood type system you'd use at a hospital. Do you have uh, O or do you have uh, B negative or, mm -hmm. or whatever it is? And there's all these little subcategories, but it's not – it's not evidence with a whole lot of discriminating power. In other words, there's an awful lot of people in the world with blood type B or blood type O or whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it, it's of some use. So that's how it was analyzed by our state lab. And, and we went forward. After that trial was over, at some point, there was a case called Commonwealth versus Lanigan. Oh, uh, Dobear Lanigan. Right, where uh, oh yeah, uh, Stephanie Glennon persuaded the uh, state supreme court that uh, DNA evidence was reliable evidence in that case, and henceforth it could be admitted in in Massachusetts. And we already talked about the time lag between trial one and trial two. So. Uh, when I came to do trial two, you know, my attitude was, well, now I can use DNA evidence, so I'm, yeah. I'm going to. So we had a lot of things that were not tested before tested. And at that point, the process that the FBI had used to do their DNA testing uh, was uh, um, essentially obsolete and they had a new system called uh, STR DNA testing, which was much more sensitive. And our state lab did it. We didn't have to use the FBI. That was the good news. The bad news was, well, two things. I needed to get someone from the FBI to come out to testify to the pieces that, that they had done. Mm -hmm. um, and the agent who had done the testing was no longer there, so we brought um, uh, the FBI provided me with someone else, and also um, there was some other evidence uh, that I needed uh, to uh, I needed to get a person's blood type to sort of exclude him uh, as a possible suspect, and. Uh, to do that, one of the things I had to do was to compare it with a particular blood test that the state lab had done back in trial number one. Now, to show you how quickly things can change in less than 10 years, at the time of trial number one, the only type of blood testing that our state lab did, the state police lab, 
was the ABO testing. Uh-huh. By the time we came to Farley 2, the only type of blood testing that they did was the STR DNA testing, at, at least for these for these purposes. They no longer did the ABO. So I had to find some lab in Philadelphia somewhere. Oh, I won't I won't say I found it, obviously somebody found it. Uh for me to, to to get that done, but uh, it it was a tribute to the jury because they had to sit through an explanation of uh, the old-fashioned FBI DNA testing, mm-hmm. the ABO testing, and the uh, the DNA testing. It would make your head spin as yeah. a, as a citizen. Yeah. You you it, it's so I can't imagine being on a murder trial right. to begin with, and then hearing all that, you're just like. And, and returning to your point, uh, Jordan, about the the story Diane Farley told, there was no evidence, there's no physical evidence that Raphael was right. in that room. Right. But there was plenty of evidence that Sally and Diane Farley uh, were in that so, room. So there's an example where physical evidence can also help someone who's innocent of any charges or any accusations because there's no physical evidence to put him at the scene of the crime. It, it made it, sense. It, it did both. Yeah. And and aside from the uh, uh, analysis of the blood in terms of uh, composition and genetics and all that sort of thing, the way the blood was distributed around the room told us a lot about what had happened in the room and what had. Uh, had gone on there. Uh, for example, uh, Diane Farley was wearing blue jeans, and there was a bloody uh, blue jean print, as if from somebody's knees, you know, mm. denim type fabric on the bedspread, Diane Farley's bedspread uh, of, uh, not Diane Farley's, uh, Sally's bedspread. Sally's, yeah. Uh, in 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 Sally's blood, and uh, you remember you asked about the story that Diane told. Um, we know that she she cut herself, and we know that her hand was was dripping blood, and you can see drops of her blood various places on the stairs down from mm. the bedroom to the first floor. There were no drops of blood on the cellar stairs or in the cellar. And you remember her story was that she had gone down the cellar and hid there while she was right. waiting for Raphael right. to leave. Uh, so so that was significant. And the, um, the, the expert we called Ed Bernstein uh, to talk about the blood evidence uh, was, was, was very helpful. Didn't he say, I remember that he said there were two people bleeding in that room. There was blood of Diane Farley found right at the decedent's body as well as the decedent. And they found a sneaker print that I guess paired up with the sneakers she was wearing, Diane Farley was wearing. So, and Raphael, I thought it was interesting to note, you may, this may refresh your memory also. He gave his blood, his fingerprints up willingly and they exonerated him. Nobody found a lick of anything connecting him in that bedroom. Yes, I mean, um Sometimes it's really true that if you know you're innocent and you uh, go for uh, it, you know, <laughs> Here you take go. my fingerprints, take my blood, <laughs> uh, it, it really works out for you well. And uh, it, it worked out well for, for us as, as well, obviously, in terms of the case. So her boyfriend picked her up in the morning in his vehicle. At she Diane Farley exited the home, and the neighbor observed her putting something in the back seat going back in the home and coming out with a red robe or something. Mm-hmm. And then they left. And he said, and then when she was exiting the vehicle and her boyfriend Blatt said, how did you get all that money? And I don't know. She, yeah, I think she drops a, yeah, a, a lot yeah. of bills. And the murder yeah. weapon was never recovered? No. It was never recovered. Yeah. No. The, um, uh, now, interestingly, the, uh, the neighbors... Uh, 
you know, it helps to have nosy neighbors, I guess, if you're uh, an investigator. <laughs> of course, if you're overpounding on their door at 3 o'clock in the morning, they can be forgiven for paying attention. But, but they see this. They see you're picked yeah. up, and they yeah. see you're making the trips uh, back and forth to the house and, uh, and carrying things out. But uh, when she makes the first trip back into the house after yeah. first coming out, uh, the boyfriend says, "What's that? It looks like right. the back of your jeans are 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 all wet." And she says, "Oh, that must be from the shower. I showered before I before I left." But of course, our theory was uh, that that was they were wet from blood and mm. not uh, wet from the shower. So she she goes home, and one of the things she does is she washes and bleaches all of the clothes. <laughs> That she's wearing. Well, it's yeah. Uh, so, we didn't get much from that, but on the bottom of her sneaker, we did find uh, blood traces. Right. So, so that was a significant little piece. So after Diane Farley goes home, about two o'clock in the afternoon, her brother, the decedent's brother, goes to Sally's home looking for Sally. Sees her vehicle parked you know, as it should be in the driveway. The door was unlocked. He entered the home, went up the stairs and found her face up on the floor, from what I remember, just clad in a blue turquoise T-shirt. I remember the color. Mm. Right. She, he he goes, opens the door, comes Awful. in. Awful. Sally, Sally. Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't get an answer. And he looks over at the living room and this, it's all askew. Clothes are thrown all over the place. And then he goes upstairs and... You can picture him opening that door and looking in, and there's mm. his sister lying dead on the the bedroom floor. What was the uh, well? The verdict, I assume, was guilty the second time. Yes, uh, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about it in retrospect that it wasn't. But whatever happened to uh, the defendant at that point, in terms of sentencing and so forth? Well, um, in first degree murder in Massachusetts, the judge does not have any discretion. They're sentenced to uh, life without parole. So, okay. so that was her her sentence. And uh, then there was uh, an appeal, and uh, I was a little uh, luckier on the second appeal than I was in the first. So, so far as I know, she's still at uh, Framingham State prison mm-hmm. um, it um, you know it's it's never really fully over while the defendant is alive because they can always bring a motion for a new trial mm-hmm. if there's some newly discovered evidence or argument that they can uh, come up with and uh, if they think they're their federal constitutional rights were infringed on and they haven't uh, uh, been able, as long as they've uh, raised all these claims in state court, they can go over to federal court and uh, uh, seek uh, habeas corpus over there. And I, I don't think uh, Ms. Farley has uh, done that because uh, I'm not at the DA's office anymore, but so far as I know, the last word on this case was the decision of the SJC affirming her second conviction. You know what I didn't ask you? How old they were at the time, the two ladies. And to me, they weren't kids. They weren't old, but they weren't like 20-something. They no, were... I want to say, uh, say that uh, Sally was maybe in her mid to late 30s, and I think Diane was a comparable age, but that's just... That's just off the top of my head. But we have to, before we go, you have to talk about what happened during your closing. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was drama extraordinaire. So First, I uh, guess we should say what a closing is. Maybe people don't know. Sure, sure. So at the start of the trial, the lawyers give an opening statement where, in theory at least, they're not supposed to argue. They're supposed to just give the jury a preview of what they think the evidence is going to be. And then at the end of the trial, after all the evidence is in, uh, the, the lawyers can then argue when it's called a closing argument. And traditionally, the party that has the burden of proof, that has to prove the case, which in a criminal case is always the government, opens first. So I 
made the first opening statement, and then her attorney, Greg Schubert, opened for the defense. And then at the end, the order is is reversed. So uh, Mr. Schubert did his closing argument, and then I did mine on behalf of the government. And uh, one of the things that I think it's might be a factor in understanding what what happened. Uh, that particular courtroom is a very small courtroom. And as a result, um, unlike some other courtrooms where you might give your closing arguments standing 20 feet away from the uh, defendant, Diane Farley was sitting right behind me, about right. two or three feet away from me. Yes. If I had swung my arm expansively while I was doing my closing, I probably would have whacked her. Or right. I would have whacked her yes. attorney. So that's that's how, how close you, you are. So um, I was I was doing the closing, and uh, I was um, um, I had gone through, and I was holding up uh, the garment that Sally had been wearing, and pointing to where it had been slashed, you know, mm-hmm. stabbed here, mm-hmm. and then she stabbed her here, and so forth, and. Uh, I'll tell you, I was thinking about Mark Antony's speech at uh, at uh, Julius Caesar's funeral. I figured, hey, if it's good enough for Shakespeare, maybe it can work for me. So I was trying to steal that a little. And then I was going through uh, her story about uh, uh, going downstairs. And one of the things I remember talking about, one of the things she goes back in the house for, if the neighbors can be believed, is she goes back in the house afterwards and gets a bottle of wine. And I'm saying, oh, she was so concerned about her dear friend Sally that, you know, she swipes her bottle of wine when she's leaving. One of those nice little details. Anyway, I forget exactly where I was, but uh, I was describing her behavior. And I hear this voice. You know, sort of uh, under the breath. Yeah. And I, I think only I could hear it initially because I was so close to her. And she's saying, you don't know how it was. Mm. You don't know how it was. And I'm thinking, well, what do I do? Do I stop? Do I answer her? Do I turn around and say... Ms. Farley, if you'd like to talk to this jury, why don't you take the witness stand? I'll, I'll, I'll you know, yeah. we'll we'll reopen the case. But you know, I'll be, fortunately, I had the good sense to keep my mouth shut, and I just kept on with. <laughs> Did uh, she banged the on the? Closing. She called you a heartless bastard. And, yeah, exactly. So finally, oh, she explodes. She yeah. bangs her fist down and screams at me. You bastard, you heartless bastard, you don't know how it was. And I, of course, was thrilled at this display of temper in, 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 in front of the jury. So the judge called uh, a recess. Yep. And uh, you, You're uh, a movie fan, right? Oh, yeah. I know you are. Uh, it reminds me of whatever happened to Baby Jane in a weird kind of way. You know, two women, one's dead, and uh, you don't know how it was. Oh, my God, I just got chills. Right? Fabulous movie. Yeah. <laughs> I love Betty Davis. But that's drama when they're actually responding to you as you're making your closing statement. Yeah, yeah. And, she freaked uh, out. So, yeah, so we took a recess. Judge Kratzley secured from her a promise that she would not interrupt again, uh, which she duly made. And then he said, uh, uh, Mr. Cosgrove, because you interrupted, I'm going to give you an additional 15 minutes on your closing. And I thought, Oh, great. And I used that entire 15 minutes trying my best to get her to go off again. But, but I wasn't successful. You know, I have to say her attorney, Mr. Schubert, must have given her a good yeah. a good wow. talking to. You know, oh. we're going to end, but I just wanted to make a note that in this trial, it came up, too, that the government explored ad nauseum. There was no sexual... Um, you know, nobody got raped like she had led. She woke up and she saw you did all kinds of swabbing, you know, the, the Commonwealth, not you personally. But they came in and they did they got rid of that theory pretty quickly. They proved that it was not a sexual attack. So just, you know, 
the Commonwealth ruled that out, so we'd be remiss if we didn't say that. Well, we did our best. Thank you. Yeah, Must it was a beautifully, beautifully tried case. It was a great, great case. But, you know, she would come in and sit, and her handcuffs would come off before the jury would even see her. So, as you said, it was tight quarters. She'd talk to me all the time. Maybe we had a bond because our first names were Diane. And you know what? You're going to cringe when I say this. I'm going to cringe. You're not pen pals now, are you? No, <laughs> but she was personable. Like, mm-hmm. I think human beings are complicated. Well, you've, they... you've told us on the podcast, Diane, about some of the people that have been charged and convicted of murder, some of the most charming people in in certain respects. I mean, human nature is what it is. Yeah. It's fascinating. I don't think I'd like her if she was stabbing me 11 times <laughs> in my bedroom. No. It's just like, You're whoa. just such a friendly person. People just want to be your friend. But, I mean, that's just so inappropriate to begin with. And I'm like, why is she talking to me? It just wasn't good. But... She was as bubbly as could be. Naturally, she's going to be on her best behavior when she's in a courthouse getting tried for murder. Well, you'd think that, but not everybody is. How about the one that was tried right out of the, right from the, the lockup? Remember that years ago? I don't remember that. That was in North. That's a podcast for another day. Uh, you, you got a million of them. <laughs> thanks, Jordan. This was a great. Oh, thanks to the judge for coming back and yeah. being so gracious with the amazing story. Fascinating case. Well, it was fun. I hope uh, I hope your listeners get something out of it. I'm sure they will. This is Diane Godfrey. This podcast is meant for entertainment purposes only. If you need legal representation, please consult an attorney. I do not have a law degree. Over the years, many people have contacted me seeking legal advice. I am not qualified to dispense any legal advice. Before we close the courtroom door on this podcast, we remind you that All Rise with Diane Godfrey is available on all podcast platforms. We invite you to subscribe, download, rate, and review this podcast. You've been listening to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from inside the courthouse from the lady who wrote everything down. Case dismissed. <laughs>